Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. You're listening to Andrea Schwartz and Steve Macias discuss a question that I think might be on a lot of people's minds. And the question is this, is fellowship possible in isolation? And I think behind that question is really looking at the news and the current situation in America today where the number one position of our communities is something called social distancing. And we're discovering that all of the government regulations or even church guidelines have emphasized an idea, social distancing, and does that idea fit with a biblical sociology? Does the church's understanding of community, of how organizations, how people, how families work, does it go against or is it compatible with an idea called social distancing? So I'm thinking of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I remember hearing more than one sermon that if you were going to follow the quote-unquote letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, the two previous to the Samaritan who passed by probably had some very good reasons why they shouldn't stop and take care of that injured man. And so I'm wondering how people reconcile the idea that we've got to stay away from other people because these other people could get us sick. These other people could be a danger. And so who becomes the enemy? It's other people. And so the idea that we're staying away from gatherings and even some of the new rules about what they intend to do with contact tracing and what happens if somebody is identified as having COVID, that really and truly it's to dissolve the idea of human interaction. That's right. And what is really fundamental here from a theological or a biblical perspective is the idea of personhood. Now, we often talk about personhood in relation to the pro-life argument. Is the, is the child a person? Things like that. But as a Christian, we recognize that you and I have this social identity of a person, and it's a reflection of the Trinitarian identity. If you read uh, Abraham Kuyper, he talks about the, the social aspect of God the Father, who has a relationship with God the Son, who has a relationship with God the Holy Spirit. And this community inside the Trinity, as expressed in the earliest statements of the Christian faith, each of them are persons. And the personhood of them is reflected in their kind of closeness to each other and the way they interact with each other. And it's expressed down into our humanity in how we possess what theologians call the the imago Dei or the image of God. And so really basic to how we best reflect God is that we are made as human persons. And what really fundamentally is different when we talk about social distancing or talk about separating or virtual services or talking to each other over Zoom is that we're trying to interact our persons one with another 
using only certain parts or pieces of our person, right? We, we communicate with our voices or we communicate with our <laughs> messages or our video and we try to supplant the idea that personal relationships happen in real life. And we reduce down the human person to thoughts or words or emojis or all these different kinds of things. Uh, but what God really demonstrates in ultimately the person of Jesus Christ is that to be truly a person and for a person to truly be united to God, you need an incarnation. You need God coming down and taking on human flesh. And so we're going to talk a little bit about all these different ways that's expressed. But ultimately, the idea is to be a true person means you have not just a mind, but you have a mind and body and a soul, and that you don't just interact with people in language. You don't just interact with people over writing or emojis, but there is a requirement for physical touch and community and nearness and proximity to, to truly express your personhood. And I'm thinking of even in Paul's letters, he would say, I yearn to come and see you. He was writing to them, so he was communicating to them in writing, but there was a yearning to be close with them. Just the other day, I was in a store, and I wasn't wearing a mask because the store didn't require it. But everybody else in the store was, and I asked one of the clerks for help, and I thanked him, and I smiled, and he said, he said, it's so good to see a smile. You have no idea how much I miss a smile. And I said, well, you know what? You can smile under your mask. I still see in your eyes that you're smiling. But think about that. Not only have we told people to be away from each other, now we can't really see each other. And so the clues that everybody would know, this is friendly, this is not friendly, this is someone who needs help, this is someone, you know, whatever the circumstance, is that this, this whole programming is to get us to look at other people as potential problems as opposed to people we would reach out to. Yes, and ultimately... Uh, what the gospel does is it reunites and reconciles relationships. You know, primarily the gospel reconciles the individual uh, with God. There's a salvation, there's the healing of the soul. Uh, but then there's also the sense in which peoples, right? So the Jews, the Gentiles, the males, the females, groups of people are reconciled unto God to become his elect. And so the idea of the gospel itself is repairing or restoring or redeeming relationships. And so the picture of the gospel is always people coming together. And really, there's a sense in which that idea of separation is really antithetical to what the scripture proclaims God does. If you read, as you mentioned, St. Paul, not only does he describe us you know, becoming one body, coming close in unity, he uses the phrase communion, we're joined together, you know, we're the hand attached to the arm type thing. But he also says that nothing, right, and he goes through a whole list of human circumstances, can, quote, separate us from the love of God. And so the really strong language of the scripture is that the gospel puts things back together not separates. And so when we talk about social distancing, we have to be careful that we're not undermining the very language the scripture uses to describe human interaction. And the whole social distancing 
is sort of an arbitrary thing. There, there are lots of different theories as to why it's six feet and not five feet or six feet and 10 feet. But basically what it prevents us from doing is to feel comfortable in each other's spaces. And what we've seen happen on social media where people who would normally be able to see each other in person or whatever are now arguing philosophies and you have families that haven't been able to see other parts of their family. And is everybody just getting used to being apart? How many people miss the fellowship of their brothers and sisters in Christ? And that that's more important to them than getting their toilet paper or making sure that they have enough food in the pantry. Isn't that a need that we have that, per the scriptures, is one of the most primary needs that we have? That's right. And the other the part here with the strangeness of this thing called social distancing is that it really does the exact opposite of what scripture describes in sense of uh, uncleanness or leprosy or how it handles disease. The strange thing is we're using kind of Christian language, quarantine or uh, you know leprosy, or we talk about disease. I've even seen people talk about how social distancing and wearing masks is the true love of Christ for people because it protects them from getting sick. Um, so a lot of people have really confused and confounded the language here. Uh, but if you look at the Bible itself, it has instructions for how to handle sickness and disease. It has instructions for how to handle cleanliness. Most people will ignore that Western culture, medicine, all of our health standards, the greatest doctors of the last two millennia, the greatest scientists, the folks who invented the microscope that found and discovered bacteria and viruses, was all done within a Western Christian worldview that operated under the understanding that God's law reveals how to handle social circumstances. But it's most ironic when we talk about something like this, where the Bible is you know, consistently explicit. And what we're going to find 20 years from now, or 50 years from now, or a century from now, when we look back at this particular crisis, as we do every century, is that if we had just followed the Bible's precepts and stuck to God's example and standard, that we would have got through it quicker, and responded better. So on this issue, often invoked is the idea of leprosy. And I know, Andrea, you're an expert in Old Testament law. You've been studying Rosh Duni for decades. What would you do to a leper? And what was the common understanding of leprosy as we hear from the pulpit and from Dr. Rush Duni? Well, Rush Duni makes it pretty clear that what is called leprosy in the scripture isn't necessarily the same thing that we talk about it today. That there were a lot of diseases that when biblical law was followed were eradicated. Um, and, and if you go back, and I'm not going to be able to describe it all here, but you had to go to present yourself to the priest to be able to show that whatever you had was no longer there and he would come to your house. There was an understanding that why are people sick? But doesn't the scripture say, why is there sickness among you? There's sickness among us because of sin. That's the ultimate reason. But sickness is something that goes on and you see it, you know, in your own family history and the history of the last 200 years since the Republic was founded. There have been times of illness. 
and people would react to illness from the point of view that they would seek to find a remedy, they would recuperate, they wouldn't be out among people because there was a sense that if you were sick, you didn't want to spread it. Well, that's all within a Christian context that you would care for your brother. You would care that you would do to other people or unto other people what they'd want to do unto you. But there was this overall understanding that sickness is ultimately the result of the fall. When you take that out, that concept out of a biblical framework, and then you have the state saying that people can't go out until it's completely eradicated, they're working on a false premise. Yes. Eradication of illness and death will only come about as people bow the knee to Jesus Christ, because the reason for the wars, the sicknesses, the disputes has to do with the fact that people are ultimately in rebellion against God. And what's interesting is, as you say that, I know that there are some people listening who are going to think, that's like a super weird evangelical way of describing sickness. Maybe you're, you're such a biblicist and there are real bacteria and real diseases that we have to fight and protect ourselves against. But the reality is that from the very beginning of the Christian church, way back, if you go and read the Patristic Fathers, they describe salvation, not in terms of a legal system or substitution. The earliest church fathers say that Christ is our savior because he is, quote, the great physician and healer of our souls. They'd say that what you just described, how Adam is the root of all sickness because of his sin, they said through Adam's sin, sickness entered into the world through what they described as the darkening of the soul, that that darkening happened to everything, that everything ultimately was made not well or made sick. And what Christ has come to do is come to heal the nations. And this is why if you go all the way to the end of the book in Revelation, when it talks about the, the great river and the tree at the end of the river, the new tree of life with leaves that heal the nations, uh, the picture of salvation is we're sick, sickness and <laughs> disease has entered in the world. And the only solution for that is Jesus, the great physician. Now, how many people begin their prayers with uh, Jesus, our great doctor, or end their prayers in the name of our holy physician, Jesus Christ? But that's how the earliest Christians prayed, because they didn't have this dichotomy that our physical bodies, we used penicillin, and we used vaccines, and we used band-aids, and then our spiritual body, we said prayers. No, the, the idea is that they're the same thing. <laughs> You're one whole person this body will die, and then it'll be brought up again uh, at, the day, at the general resurrection of the second coming of Christ, because the sickness is what has to be fixed. And so uh, the scripture, when it talks about leprosy, as you pointed out, uh, not just the disease we call leprosy today, but all sickness of the body was seen in this kind of clean versus unclean paradigm, so that we might understand how it is God puts everything right. And like anything else that the enemies of God like to perpetrate is they take some truth and they try to own it without owning where the truth comes from. So what do we hear about those who die or get very ill with this current situation? We hear the word comorbidities. 
well, how do you get a comorbidity? How is it that you might have diabetes? How is it that you might have heart disease? How is it that you might have cancer? Well, if you look at it from the point of view of your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, then it will matter what you put inside your body. It'll matter if you smoke a lot of cigarettes. It'll matter if you inject yourself with drugs to ease your pain as a way to not face up to your responsibilities. If you're a glutton, it will have ramifications. So if we identify that we have these comorbidities, are we going to say, well, that what this means is that our country, our world should spend much more attention on actually preventing such things and come to terms with why we're so self-destructive no, the, the modern view is let's produce a drug, let's produce a vaccine that will make it so our bad behavior doesn't come back to bite us. Well, mm. whether it's the HPV vaccine for people who are promiscuous or the HIV for people who might um, indulge in a homosexual lifestyle, I've always said there's no such thing as safe sin. You're not going to be able to find a remedy for you to sin with impunity. And just so people understand that we all need to examine in our own lives what things that we have made idols of so that we don't have to face the truth that God's word wants us to confront. That's right. Well, and as you point out this, this kind of escape from responsibility, the reality is that this social distancing that's being advocated today um, is largely the same science that has been used since, be, since the time of Christ and all throughout the ancient world. The idea of simply avoiding somebody who was sick is the MO of the ancient world. There's a great story uh, in Second Kings uh, where the prophet Elijah is called in to uh, talk to Naaman. I'm sure you remember this story where Naaman has leprosy and he becomes the social outsider. The ancient pagans would cover their mouth, afraid to get sick, very similar to what we do today, covering our face so we don't get sick, even though we know the science works the other direction. <laughs> but we would, then when the person who had some type of physical disfigurement or physical sign of leprosy or some outward disease you know, we'd point our fingers and say, you know, keep your distance, or we'd yell at them, you know, leper, leper, stay away. And so the science of social distancing is, is pretty ancient uh, and pretty pagan. But what we see in that story with, with Naaman and Elisha is the prophet of God comes to the leper. He doesn't participate in the way the culture does then. He comes to and he engages the man who has leprosy, who has a disease, and he offers him purification. Now, in this particular story, purification was he gave them a ceremony of how he could go into a river or a lake, and as he came out, he'd be clean and refreshed. Very important sign because it's you know, almost like a, a pre-Christian baptism. But all of those signs really point to the opposite of social distancing. The Jew who became a leper, who wasn't a pagan like Naaman, the Jew who became a leper would go through a physical interaction with the priest. It was the pagans who ostracized people. The Jews would take it upon themselves to ritually purify the lepers. And I'm sure you, you could pull up the quote in Leviticus, but the long short of it is 
one of the most important things that a leper would do is he would come to the temple. So I want you to hear, he would come to church and they would take the sacrifice, usually the heifer sacrifice or some of the ashes of that or the blood from the, the uh, sacrifice, depending on what time of the year it was. And they would smear it on the backside of the leper's ear. Now, some of you who are familiar with biblical symbolism could know or will know that that's what Abraham does to his servants uh, before he goes into battle. And that's also what the ancient Levites did when they were kind of consecrated or ordained or set apart to become priests at the temple. There was this idea that the physical touching, the mixing of skin and blood, this closeness down to ritual touching uh, was part of God's healing process. And so while the pagans want to say leper, leper, and, and create social distancing, the Hebrews <laughs> would call the leper into the church and convert him through their physical touching. <laughs> and so it's very interesting how much we've gotten away from that and really returned back to a, an old type of really superficial paganism. Now, didn't you reference something about Jesus's travels in the Gospels, that if you didn't understand biblical geography, you might miss some of the significance of the routes he took to go to various places? Yes, and that's also really important and ties into what you said about you know, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, when I teach the story of the Good Samaritan to young Christians here at Canterbury, um, they've only heard the Good Samaritan in a positive sense. And so they don't immediately pick up on the fact that the Good Samaritan is supposed to be an oxymoron, right? Good Samaritan is supposed to be like jumbo shrimp, right? So no Jew believes at the time of Christ that there's something called a Good Samaritan. It's offensive to say it because prior to Christ, a couple hundred years before uh, Christ comes into the scene, the Babylonian captivity had separated different groups of the Jews. So the Jews in Jerusalem had been taken into captivity, and some of the Jews who were outside of Jerusalem decide to build another temple. And so the, the Jews who decide to build another temple also intermarry with the pagans, and these become the Samaritans. And so they have their own reading of the Torah, they have their own kind of language they develop to read the scriptures. They don't fall into the kind of Hellenization that the, the Jews in Jerusalem do when they come back from Babylon. And there's really a animosity between the Samaritans who worship at a new mountain and the Jerusalem uh, Jews who worship at a different mountain. So much that when the Romans start building roads in the Near East, you know, from Jerusalem to other parts, that the Jesus and the disciples end up taking during his ministry, that there had become traditions that Jews would take longer routes to avoid having to even encounter Samaritan camps. You know, they didn't want to run into a Samaritan woman. <laughs> they didn't want to run into a Samaritan stranger. They didn't want to have to ask to show up at a Samaritan well because that was all polluted because only Samaritans would uh, co habit with Samaritans. But Jesus, in his journey, kind of breaks all of those rules. In fact, shocks his own disciples that they have to include it in the writings of the Gospels. And Jesus went through <laughs> on this you know, Transjordan route uh, to and into Samaritan territories. So Jesus was, was definitely trying to make a point 
that the way that we get people with the gospel has nothing to do with social distancing or the purity of their health or the purity of their race. I mean, the Jews had legitimate reasons to not hang out with the Samaritans. I mean, it'd be like us avoiding the Mormons, right? They're a false religion. But Christ went out of his way, said that it's not good enough to avoid them, but we must go in and do the opposite of social distancing from them. What's even interesting is when Jesus encounters the lepers, I've always been taken with the story because he heals 10 and only one comes back and says, thank you. There's nothing in the story that says as a result of the ungratitude of those people who were healed, they suddenly had leprosy again. No, they were cured of their leprosy. So even in the context of healing, all healing comes from God. Just like if we're going to say, where did this pandemic come from? God is the sovereign Lord. And if there are bacteria, he created them. If there are viruses, he created them. There's illness that this is part of the consequences of sin, that people can benefit from a correct biblical application of health and not even really be believers. There's nothing that said that those nine lepers who were cured were believers. But none the same, this account in the scripture is to show us that God is the God over even sickness. And then, of course, later on, when Jesus rises from the dead, he is Lord over death and can overcome it. Right. And what's, what's important to connect here is what you say, uh, sickness and health. Um, th these ideas are often separated. Even sickness and spirituality are separated. But what the Bible does is it connects all of these things. It's like what the modern hippie says, you know, that food is the best medicine. Well, in the ancient world, that was kind of true. There was no separation between the pharmacy and the food you ate. The, the idea was that food rights, uh, that's rights, R-I-T-E-S, were connected to social rights. And what's remarkable about the kind of COVID crisis is how much this ancient sense of worship comes back into our social culture. So, for example, uh, the Old Testament, throughout the, the Levitical priesthood, the priest offers real meals at the temple. And the only way you could come to those meals is if you had gone through these physical ceremonies, you know, circumcision, purification, you were ceremonially clean. And then you would go and physically eat at the temple. You'd eat the parts of the sacrifice that the priest would give out. There was a real sense in the Jewish world and in the pagan world that our identity and entrance into a community was connected to our standing. So if you were unclean or if you were sick, which in the Bible is often the same thing, right? So if you're unclean because you're on your menses or if you're unclean because you have a, <laughs> you have a disease like leprosy, you're separated from a group of people and you need to be restored. Isn't Whole Foods doing that right now? <laughs> Isn't Target doing the same thing right now? Unless you go through their purification ritual, which is not done with the blood of a heifer, it's not done with ashes, it's not done by a high priest, it's usually done with a man with an orange vest with a bottle of Purell as you wash your hands ceremonially as you come into the store, and then you have to put on your your vestment, your, your face mask, 
and you have to be very careful that you maintain the correct posture. So you walk in the right processional with six feet in front of you, <laughs> standing on the marked parts of the ground. It's very ceremonial. And if you don't match the right, again, that's R-I-T-E, then you're removed or ostracized from their religious community. How strange is it that these are all done in the sense of health or salus or salvation? These are all the same ideas. And yet we, because we have this modern idea separating spiritual identity from physical identity, don't recognize that we've turned our places where we eat and buy our goods into new pagan temples. And the new greeting is stay safe, save others, stay home, stay safe. And I got so tired of hearing that, that I decided I needed a retort. And so when people say to me, stay safe, my answer is I am safe in the arms of my Savior, Jesus. And believe it or not, I've gotten a couple of amens at the hardware store or other places because people are yearning for that. Believers who say, yes, I agree. So it isn't going to be how far apart we stand from each other or how often we wash our hands that's going to make the difference in terms of how all this plays out. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. And our land has a much greater disease than COVID-19. It has to do with the disease of following other gods and placing other gods before God. That's right. Well, what do you think is really the Christian salutation? You know, everybody says stay safe or be healthy or all those type of things. I think that the salutation that we would most frequently hear in the worship service and amongst Christians throughout the last seven or eight millennia <laughs> is the idea of peace or shalom, even down into the Christian age today. Instead of saying stay safe, which what they really mean is hide yourself from disease or worry about, <laughs> fret about disease, the Lord says, you know, peace be with you. And the Christians used to approach each other with peace be with you. And the way that they would signify that they were expressing peace, you know, between two people, between their culture, between the folks in the church, is they had this special physical sign. You know what I'm talking about? The peace sign? <laughs> it is the kiss of peace. <laughs> right. And in a COVID age, we might think a kiss of peace is a kiss of death. Yet, how is it that for 2,000 years, Christians have been kissing each other <laughs> in the worship service, and yet we all haven't died from some viral airborne virus? Or even take the whole idea of shaking hands. Shaking hands is a way that says, I'm friendly. We're going to have contact with each other, that we don't look at each other as an enemy. And yet, with all these things in place, we are becoming more and more isolated, that the only place we feel comfortable is when we're with people we don't know, six feet apart, waiting to put something on the grocery belt, or waiting in line to get something at the bank, when the idea of coming together as believers in Jesus Christ, for goodness sakes, even singing has been told, you can't praise the Lord because you'll spread this disease. What disease is spread when we don't praise the Lord? That's right. Well, and the kiss of peace is, 
is so interesting because of how it plays out in the life of Jesus, right? He is betrayed by his close friend's kiss. And so there is a sense in which our personal relationships, you know, the lack of social distancing builds a community, right? It allows us to have these close relationships, to get to know each other, to sing, to be near each other. Uh, But it also is frightening because it demands that the Christian is in one sense vulnerable, vulnerable to uh, the attacks of betrayal from even those whom he's known, uh, but also vulnerable to the consequences of sin in this world. But what we often try to do, instead of addressing our vulnerabilities with faith, we try to pretend like the vulnerabilities aren't there, and we make up these superstitions, these six-foot rules. Somehow our sneeze that goes 12 feet is stopped by a six-foot social distancing barrier. But we come up with our own superstitions to confuse or delude ourselves into believing that we're not really vulnerable, that we are in control, that we don't have to put our complete trust in God, and that we have some authority over whether we live or we die. And so the kiss of peace, uh, and really all of this anti-social distancing stuff you see throughout the scripture, ultimately points to we have to rely on our next breath, our next day, our next bout of good health to come from God. In the epistle of St. James, it says, is any of you sick? Go to the apothecary. No, it doesn't say go to the apothecary. It doesn't even say go to the hospital. It doesn't say stay home and rest. It says, call for the elders that they might anoint you with oil, right? That they might pray for you, that they might give you, consecrate you unto the Lord. And you should hear in that the Hebrew people doing exactly to us who are sick, consecrating you with oil that the Hebrew people in the old Levitical system would have done to the leper, anointing their ear with oil. There is nothing that has changed between before Christ and after Christ in regard to who's in control of your health. The only difference is now Christ has fully secured the remedy. It has been conquered that makes you sick, and yet we have poor health because we do not go to God and ask for him to bless us with good health. All right. Now to go back to the idea of isolation, for those who have been paying attention, apparently in the last couple of months, there have been more suicides than what normally would take place in a year, yet you don't hear that mentioned very often except in passing. And doesn't it make sense to you, Steve, that people who don't interact with other people that people who are basically told to be suspicious of other people, that if you go out, you're going to be killing someone or they could be killing you. If you don't have community, you're left oftentimes with just yourself. And that's just not enough. That's right. I'm, I'm reminded, and I don't mean to sound strange in this way, but I'm reminded of uh, the, the story in 1984 of how every individual and every family was kind of isolated out in their apartments and their only source of outside contact was in their heavily regulated jobs where they talked through (laughs) the department of information or through the telescreens in their own homes. And not to say that everything in our world is so dystopian that it could be compared to 1984, but the COVID lockdown here in Santa Clara County looks a lot like 
1984. We get up in the morning and just like there, our buddy who does his exercise in front of the screen, so do we. We have 24-hour go, uh, an app that tells us to do our exercises. And just like Winston, we, we get an update in the telescreen or the television from the news of what's going on with the wars or what's going on with the virus. And every bit of our life is now being individualized. And the danger there and the moral of that story is that as individuals, it's easy to control one person. When we cut off the free exchange of information, cut off the exchange of ideas, of interactions, uh, it's not a coincidence that Orwell contrasts the coldness of individualization in 1984 with the romantic, even sexual relationship with another woman. Because what is missing in this kind of dystopian future is intimacy, is relationships, is community. And the Christian idea is that we are his koinonia, his community, his communion. We are a part of Christ's body, brought into the very family of God through the Father and the Son. And so there is no Christian identity that exists in solitary uh, individuation. And there is no Christian community that exists merely as individuals. Right. So we're coming up to this Sunday is the Feast of Pentecost. And at least in our neck of the woods, there has been a relaxation of government restriction on people worshiping together. But yet there's still these very stringent restrictions. And what makes you wonder how much the people of God even understand their own history to realize that the martyrs did not die because they did something atrocious. What they did that earned them a very brutal death was refusing to declare that the emperor or that the Caesar was Lord. I, th I think a lot of people today get confused and think, well, if our local government tells us we can't do this, we should not do this. Why? Because the assumption is they know best. Now, if anything has convinced people, you have to see how everybody has flip-flopped in the last three months as, as to what is best. But how sad that too many people are probably unaware of the things we've referenced today in terms of God's law and the prescription on how to deal with illness, that in essence, even though they may profess with their lips, their actual confession is that Caesar is Lord. That's right. And the strange thing about Caesar is Lord and this kind of obedience to civil authorities is it seems to be very conveniently aligned with what's easiest, right? What requires the least amount of work. Because here in, in California, in the last week, we've had two Caesars tell us two different answers. There's the federal Caesar, who says, open up your churches now. <laughs> and then we have the other Caesar, the state Caesar, who says, do not open up your churches unless you follow my very strict instructions. But you probably shouldn't do it anyway. Well, at this point, a Romans 13 Christian who believes that the civil magistrate is the ultimate authority, you would think they would bow their knee to the higher Caesar, right? Isn't that what St. Paul says? But suddenly, they found a nuance to this 
understanding of Romans 13 that happened to realign with their previous ideas about the sickness or the disease or their call to responsibility. So I, I think it ultimately reveals that Christians need to do what the early Christians decided to do. And when they professed Christ as Lord and not Caesar as Lord, that meant that they also had a call towards the leper and call towards the abandoned, diseased children of the Roman Empire that they took in. And so for us today, instead of taking the easy way out, we're called to go to the leper, refuse social distancing, (laughs) and be responsible ultimately to our health under Christ, our salvation, our true salus, not our health under the virtue signaling and initiation and cleanliness rites of modern scientific materialism. And lest people think, okay, we can live with this, we've seen the worst of it, I would invite them to look at what these contact tracing procedures and directives will mean for them. Because this overreach to be the lords of the society won't stop with what we've just seen now. And quite frankly, unless the people of God accept this correction and pay attention, then we can expect more plagues, just like it took the Hebrews to experience being under the tyranny of Egypt to finally call out to God and then experience some of the plagues that the Egyptians also experienced. And this is years after having thrown their children in the Nile because they were told that they had to do it. Well, has the world done the same thing with abortion? So God is giving us a chance to repent. And I would suggest that we take this as a wake-up call because you haven't seen the worst of what tyranny can look like. It will almost make what were the circumstances at the beginning of our republic look pale compared to what lies ahead if people do not turn to the Lord. That's right. That's right. And keep in mind that all of the the things we've discussed here and the law of God, that ultimately the goal of God's people uh, throughout how they treated lepers or uncleanness or things like that, they were meant to overcome these obstacles. The expectation of the Levitical priest is that the disease would be expunged and destroyed. The expectation of Christ is that sin would be removed. The expectation of the early church is that things would improve. And so what is most troubling to hear from Christians during this age is the idea of settling or the idea of tolerating or pacifying sickness in our age. Christianity has always taken the perspective that we will conquer, overcome, destroy, declare victory, over every part of this world that was tainted by sin, especially sickness. And so rather than just dealing with it, we conquer it. Exactly. Well, a book that I would highly recommend that 
is surprisingly timely, even though it was written many decades ago by Dr. Rushduni, is revolt against maturity. Because the mature response of the Christian is to find out what it is that God requires and to do it. That's the mature response. But a revolt against maturity will often do what you said, take the easy way out. And the church was not built by those who took the easy way out. Amen. Do you have any suggestions people should go to to maybe examine these things we've talked about more clearly? Well, Dr. Rushduni has written on the mythology of science and really gets to the idea that science as we understand it today, is not a neutral idea. So when you hear your health official for your county or the federal official, they're not speaking from a matter of neutrality, like these are the figures and these are the statistics. What they're doing is they're presenting their interpretation according to their worldview. And there are lots of linkages that are depending on evolutionary and humanistic presuppositions that if you do not take those down to their core, back to their initial ideas, you're going to be believing in a, a new paganism called scientism rather than in truth. Okay, well, good. Those are two good suggestions, and I hope people follow through on it. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Like always, if you'd like to communicate to us, you can do so through our email, out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to your comments, questions, and even suggestions for future broadcasts. So thank you, Steve. All right. Peace be with you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.